Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And we do this every day, so you can so we can kind of keep up with everything that's happening. It's October 5th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. And in one of those alignment of the planets moment, one year ago today, the New York Times published that blockbuster report on Harvey Weinstein, a story that supercharged the Me Too movement and made it a cultural and political phenomenon. And a year to the day... The United States Senate is going to vote on the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh in the midst of an angry debate over allegations, mostly uncorroborated, that he may have sexually assaulted a woman more than three decades ago. So the Senate is actually expected to hold a key vote, not the final vote, later today. And conventional wisdom suggests that he's likely to win, but conventional wisdom's taken a beating lately. (laughs) So you'll probably know more than we do by the time you listen to this podcast. So. This seemed like a good time to shift the focus a bit. Uh, The headline on this should be, meanwhile, back in the Mueller probe, and joining me is a special guest from Politico, Darren Samuelson, who has had a number of interesting stories. Darren, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you very much. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Well, you've had a couple of interesting stories updating us on where we're going on the Mueller investigation. Let's start with one. Um, the, your, your report that uh, a couple of the key prosecutors had left the team, which suggests to some observers that the investigation may be winding down. Tell me about that. Well, we've been waiting patiently for, you know, the next shoe to, to drop in the Mueller probe and in the wake of the Paul Manafort, uh, trial in Virginia, and then the guilty plea that came out of the, uh, Uh, before we even got to a trial in the Washington, D.C. money laundering case. Uh, The Manafort uh, defense is now cooperating with uh, Robert Mueller, and that means that Robert Mueller doesn't need some of the people who helped to bring that original case. And so uh, a gentleman by the name of Brandon Van Grack, who had been one of the very early Justice Department officials working in the investigation of Manafort, Uh, is going back to the National Security Division at the Justice Department where he originally came from, as well as a... um an attorney named Kyle Freeney, who is an expert on uh, money laundering. And uh, she was seen frequently at the courthouse uh, as the grand jury investigation of Manafort in the early stages uh, was playing out. She was frequently spotted with a number of the other Mueller investigators. She's going back to her division at DOJ. So that takes the Mueller team down. Uh, They had, I think, maxed out at about 17 senior-level prosecutors not including Robert Mueller himself. They lost two other junior officials earlier this summer. Now they're down to 13. Uh, It's still definitely a team that is uh, moving along. And uh, at the same time, yeah, going from from, uh, the 17 down to 13 now and uh, talking with people who are watching this and obviously have seen all of the different uh, uh, legal cases play out, uh, they see it as as a downsizing. Um, they say that, you know, Mueller wouldn't be letting these people go if he didn't need them for future cases. It would be very difficult to bring new people on and get them up to speed um, if he did. So maybe this 13 is maybe, you know, the next level down. Don't forget there are at least a dozen, maybe two or three dozen or more FBI agents, IRS officials, Treasury Department officials who have been assisting this investigation. We saw when Manafort pleaded guilty in Washington, there was probably 20 people representing Mueller's team sitting at that table and around the table, uh, not just uh, people directly on the investigation, but again, FBI agents, IRS officials, people who were ready, who had brought this case and who were there, obviously, uh, with a big victory uh, when Manafort pled guilty. 
So the it, we're of course on the outside trying to read the tea leaves. This could just be simply turning the page. That that with the Manafort conviction, we we just you know are done with that phase of the investigation, as opposed to that we're completely winding down. Yeah, I mean it's so hard to read the tea leaves. Right. Obviously, that was the immediate reaction when we learned this news on Tuesday. Uh, as we're trying to you know immediately put out our first story, what does it mean? What does it mean? The editors were immediately wanting to know: Does this mean the investigation is over? And you know, there's been other things that have happened recently that would suggest that we are, you know, we're definitely not in the first quarter. James Comey uh, famously said a couple of weeks ago on a, in an interview with NPR in St. Louis that you know he's reading the tea leaves and thinks that we're in the fourth quarter of this investigation. Mm-hmm. But it's you know it could be the first minute of the fourth quarter and if it's like an nba game or an nfl game those last uh, five minutes could take you know a century so uh it's very possible that this fourth quarter if comey's right is going to stretch out for a while uh obviously you know the end of the Mueller probe um and i caution you know to try and interpret too much into whether we're there you know that would probably entail a final report of some kind with a very significant considerable debate over whether the public would ever get to see that report, um, whether it would go uh, into the Justice Department archives and, and gather dust like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, or, or would it actually appear you know, for the wider world to see. Um, and if Democrats take control of Congress, that would very likely mean uh, we would get to see that report, at least some version of it, maybe with redactions uh, galore from grand jury uh, information that's not allowed to be made public. Um, but we can get into that certainly going forward. Yeah, talking no, no, so that 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 decision would, is up to Rod Rosenstein right now, right? I mean, the, or 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 whoever is in that position, he's got to approve the release of that. Is, yeah, and is, isn't that up to the DOJ rather than to Congress whether this is made public? It is up to Rod Rosenstein. The, the report goes from Mueller to Rosenstein, um, and then obviously Rosenstein has to decide. I think that's what the regulations say: what to do with the report. If Democrats are in charge of Congress, they can subpoena that report, and we could get into a very interesting showdown if if Rosenstein was ready to release uh, the report or you know comply with that subpoena uh, from Congress. If Democrats wanted to go there, uh, you know there are other ways to get this information from. Mueller to Congress, famously, you know, the Watergate uh, version was a, I think they called it a roadmap that uh, they delivered to the House Judiciary Committee, which was in the process of impeachment proceedings um, in uh, in that case. And so the Mueller, excuse me, the, the Watergate team provided sort of the, the top level findings uh, that they handed over to House Judiciary. Obviously, impeachment never uh, quite uh, went as far as it needed to in, in that case with Nixon. But, you know, there's the Clinton model as well, where Ken Starr was actually under obligation to write a report mm-hmm. um, and give it to Congress. And um, that obviously led to the famous Star Report. Uh, you know, this with with the fact that there is no overlying mandate, uh, you know, in a law to, to report to Congress is why we end up in this questionable uh, situation where Mueller's findings may or may not, uh, I think there's an intense legal debate, um, find their way into the public domain. No doubt the public is thirsty for answers yeah. and wants to know what, what he found, you know, but between here and there, you know, obviously they're probably starting to write the report. They probably have, you know, outlines and in, 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 uh, in their mind as they've been doing their work. And certainly the reporting that I've done suggests that they have, you know, begun the writing process. But there are other shoes that we just don't know. I mean, the Manafort team uh, is providing and is downloading everything that they know as part of their cooperation agreement with uh, 
with Robert Mueller. I was actually up at the uh, the Mueller office on Monday. Yeah, tell and saw. me, tell tell me about that. Uh, this 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 is your beat. And when you mentioned before we started this podcast that you were up at the Mueller offices, my my, my eyebrows went up because <laughs> because it's it's like I have this mental image of sort of you know the fortress of ultimate darkness, but nobody's there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have an office, and you can go there. There's an office. You can't go into the building. I will. I will caution you that there is. It's a federal fortress. Um, it is in Washington D.C. The location itself um, has been secret. You know, kept secret by the Mueller team when they they actually were in a different building at the start. The Ford building, I think, a D or F Street, right behind the FBI. Uh, but then they moved to a new location. Uh, I'm going to say about a year ago. And when they moved, they wouldn't tell us. Uh, where they went, though reporters quickly figured it out. Um, you know, and on occasion there have been television cameras staked out on the sidewalk outside uh, the building, uh, and you know every time the cameras will pan and try and get uh, footage of the actual front of the building, the the federal guards will come out and and tell people to no no pictures are allowed or not supposed to be taken mm-hmm. from this public sidewalk toward the building where the Mueller team. Uh, works. Um, however, uh, you know, again, reporters have on occasion been standing outside there hoping for a glimpse of something. You will see, you know, sometimes around lunchtime, um, I have on occasion been out there and seen, you know, many members of the Mueller prosecution team grabbing sandwiches um, and getting some fresh air. <laughs> um, you know, the so what happened on Monday for me is I, I do, you know, occasionally make the rounds and, and wander over there just to check out and see what's going on and you know, even just sometimes if you see multiple TV cameras out there, then you maybe can get a sense that everyone's sort of anticipating some something. Um, and so on this particular day, there were no TV cameras. There were no other reporters. And I'm, I'm turning the corner and lo and behold, standing out there is uh, Andrew Weissman, who's pretty much mm. the you know number two, number three top prosecutor on the Mueller team. And who's he talking to? But two of the lawyers on the Paul Manafort team who were very prominent players in the defense trial back in Virginia and Alexandria, which feels like a, a, a million years ago, but really was just back in August. Um, and they were standing outside. It was during the lunch hour. They were, uh, you know, chatting amicably. It was, it was, um, it sound, you know, from, from a little bit of a distance, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, be respectful. Um, you could, you know, kind of overhear them. It sounded like they were joking a little bit and I snapped a picture couple pictures of the uh, of the scene um and i watched them as they as they broke ranks and, and went their separate ways to go get sandwiches and uh, from a street vendor and then uh, watched them go up back to the um to the to the muller office and i learned that indeed paul manafort was up there and doing part of his cooperation debriefing so you know an interesting development uh obviously see, see, some, sometimes journalism was about being in the right place right just just hanging out at the right place at the right time Absolutely. I've, uh, as a former Capitol Hill reporter who covered lots of different bills, you, you know, standing outside of a senator's office or a congressman's office, you, you learn so much about who's meeting with who. And, and indeed, that is uh, the shoe leather reporting uh, pays off. Uh, so sometimes it do doesn't. You, sometimes it does. What what do you think Manafort is giving the special prosecutor? That is the that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could be a fly on that wall. Yeah, easier to uh, ask than answer. <laughs> way easier to ask. I mean, you can piece together a lot of different things, and a, and a lot of people have different interpretations of that. Um, you know, obviously, there's the stuff directly related to the trials and prosecution that they brought, and whether there are other people who um, worked with Manafort who maybe were in violation of of the federal uh, requirements for lobbying as a foreign agent. So you have these questions about whether Tony Podesta. And uh, I think now Greg Craig, the former Obama White House counsel, and others could be in trouble 
for related offenses. Um, so there's sort of that lane of lobbying questions that I think maybe they're trying to download out of Manafort. That is, of course, really starting to go very far askew from the original mandate of Mueller's probe. Now, don't forget, and I mean, the, the key here is everything else that Manafort witnessed and saw in his rise to become a senior campaign chairman for Donald Trump during an incredibly uh, important part of what this investigation is all about during the Russian uh, hacking of the Democratic emails, which has been laid out in the indictments that we've already seen, um, you know, through the Trump Tower meeting, through, I should back up and also mention the Republican National Committee, excuse me, Republican National Convention and the changing of uh, some platform language that has been questionable with respect to uh, the Ukraine. Uh, Manafort was a key player, obviously, in organizing that entire convention. That was why he was brought onto the Republican uh, campaign, was his ex expertise in counting delegates and awarding off a Ted Cruz or, you know, John Kasich or some other RNC challenge. So Manafort was clearly a big player uh, that was brought into that world for that reason. Um, let's see what else. There was also, obviously, the, the hacking and... You know, you have Donald Trump's famous press conference. I believe it was in Florida. It was while the Democratic convention was going on when Trump, you know, egged on the, the yeah. Russians to to go into Hillary Clinton's email. So Manafort is a key player in all of these moments and I'm sure can provide a window into, you know, the facts, you know, as he saw them throughout that process. And I think that's what Manafort ultimately is uh, being uh, told he has to, uh, to to spill the beans on. You know, other people have noted, though, that uh, that the president doesn't seem unduly alarmed by the flipping of Paul Manafort. Uh, you know, th th this was always seen as the great white whale. You know, obviously huge resources, you know, in invested into, you know, going after Manafort in order for him to cooperate, to, to do what you saw him doing earlier this 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 week. And yet there doesn't seem to be a palpable sense of at least public anxiety. That's is, 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 yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Um, okay, I thought so. I, I, I would agree. Um, I mean, this was a, the first uh, case that was publicly brought forward, the Manafort case, and Manafort fought it all the way through. Um, now, there is no public anxiety, but I have to imagine, you know, that as I talk to people in the defense counsel world, I mean, that is what defense lawyers tell their clients to say and, you know, to do is to just sort of act cool. You know, he's got nothing to give on me and I'm not worried. And that is something that is sort of like talking point 101. Now, it is amazing that Donald Trump has managed to maybe heed that yes. advice. <laughs> and, and maybe the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination fight and the upcoming midterm elections is the, you know, the perfect distraction for a president who is incredibly, you know, quick on the trigger finger um, or the Twitter finger to, you know, say what is really going on. And maybe, you know, maybe not Rudy Giuliani here, but maybe some of the other lawyers, uh, maybe Emmett Flood, who is in the White House counsel's office and is now sort of taken on a much um, more active behind the scenes role on the Russia management mm. side um, than even Ty Cobb, the predecessor to him. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't want to say they've taken Trump's Twitter uh, feed away, but they've certainly got him focused on other things and not showing the palpable concern that um, that needs to be shown. Now, you know, maybe they've also factored in here that, um, you know, the president himself is not going to be indicted and uh, Mueller has decided that that's just not something that he can do under the, the guidelines that have uh, long been in place in the Justice Department, that a sitting president cannot be indicted. But, you know, there are longer term consequences. You know, when President Trump is out of office, could he be named, you know, down the line uh, and indicted after he's out of office? And, and, fa and family members. And family members. Donald Trump Jr. was also mm -hmm. at that Trump Tower meeting. 
Um, Jared Kushner, you know, has remained. Uh, that has been very quiet too for a long time, really. Jared Kushner's uh, situation, which could be a good thing or it could be a really bad thing. Um, you know, obviously we're in a midterm window right now. There is, you know, the James Comey lessons not to speak about an active investigation in the weeks and months before an election. And, and some people say it's a 60 day window. And that started, I guess, uh, back around Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe Mueller, you know, he's, he's certainly not quiet because I've seen him still working. And there are these legal deadlines that are happening as we, you know, uh, right now and going right after the midterms. There's a whole bunch of things lined up to happen. Well, like I, want, I, I want to talk. I want to talk about that because we're going to be flipping the screen. Everything is all Kavanaugh all now, you know, all, all the time. Then, of course, the midterms. And then as soon as the midterms are over, we're all going to flip back to what we're talking about now. Before we do, though, um, give me your take on the 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 indictment this week. Uh, the, the the you know, United States indicted seven Russians for this Olympic hacking scheme. And this is a 41 page in indictment um, issued in, in, in Pittsburgh naming members of the GRU for launching this hacking campaign against the anti-doping agency. Is, is this, what is the relationship between this and, and the Mueller probe? It, it, it seems like this is not actually part of the Mueller, Mueller probe, but is it related to it? Uh, that's correct. It's not directly part of the Mueller probe, but I think it's three of the um, indictees yesterday, uh, members of that Russian secretive spy service, um, are also indicted separately by Mueller in the July uh, indictment that he brought against 12 Russian military officials for hacking into the DNC as part of the 2016 presidential election. So clearly, according to you know these these indictments, uh, you better make sure you know your computers are secure when the Russians have such a, a, a team of 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 uh, cyber espionage experts. And so this this case yesterday, you know, there's overlap. The Justice Department's National Security Division, which is that division that I mentioned before where Brandon Van Grack from the Manafort team is, is returning to, has been very active. They actually were part of that previous indictment against the Russians on the DNC. And what you saw yesterday in going after these uh, the Russians for their, I guess, counterattacks after the Russians were banned uh, from the Olympics in 2016 in South, uh, excuse me, in Brazil, and then in 2018 in the in South Korea, as over a four-year period, they were trying to sort of undermine that entire investigation into the doping allegations that the Russian um, athletes um, were uh, party to, and clearly this was a hit on Russian pride. Um, they had just come out of the you know very successful 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, um, which I think were just a couple of days before the invasion of Crimea, and mm-hmm. you know really when the whole world turned um, its eyes on uh, on Russia and what it was doing very aggressively in the Ukraine. And so there's been this four-year period here where the Russians have been you know very much shaking things up on a global stage. And here yesterday you have the Justice Department very you know it's very interesting as well. You have the Justice Department accusing these Russians of and it's not just the Justice Department, I should add, it's the Canadians, the Dutch, the British were all part of this yesterday. There were statements coming out of all these different capitals um, on both sides of the Atlantic, lobbying charges against Russians for all kinds of cyber activities, including, I think the Brits yesterday um, uh, attributed the DNC hacking back to the Russians as well. You've got uh, cyber attacks in mm. Kiev that are being attributed to the Russians. So it's a larger sort of narrative, and I guess it's very fascinating if you think about it 
again in the context of, of that Trump Putin press conference that happened um, in July, where you know Putin was actually standing next to Trump and wouldn't, and Trump wouldn't uh, you know aggressively go after Putin for the for his meddling. And then you had that very awkward, weird uh, idea that Putin threw out there that uh, Mueller could come and talk to the uh, indictees, the people that he had just indicted, I think like two days before he could, he could happily come to Moscow and interview them in exchange for Putin being allowed to have his people question Bill Browder and the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul. So obviously that idea didn't go anywhere, though. I think Trump at the time said it was a great, incredible offer. Um, so that was, that was remarkable. Well, let's talk about the day after the midterm elections. A um, lot of, lot of speculation that President obviously is not going to be firing um, Jeff Sessions. Well, I'm not obviously. Nothing's obvious anymore. Um, doesn't appear to be inclined to, you know, fire Rod Rosenstein. Um, you know, at 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 this point. But let's imagine the day after the the election, the clock really starts running. Um, and 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 I don't want you, we don't have to get into you know speculation here. But you know, as I was thinking about the the way the Kavanaugh FBI investigation played out. Um, you know, very, very clearly, the the administration has tremendous ability to affect this investigation, at least indirectly. So um, what is your expectation? What happens if the day after the midterm election, Rod Rosenstein is fired? What happens to the Mueller investigation? If Rosenstein is fired the day after um, it depends greatly on who is uh, taking over for Rod Rosenstein. If Trump puts in somebody who is an ally, um, and, and there's questions about what the Vacancies Reform Act, I think with the firing, it's actually a little bit harder for Trump to install directly who he wants to address. I think it's most likely to be the Solicitor General, Noel Francisco, who would be in charge. And obviously you would have a political explosion with a lot of oversight and, and and the Democrats, if they're in the majority the day after the election, um, at least in the House, um, you know, absent the Rosenstein firing, things are going to be crazy. With the Rosenstein firing, you know, just exponentially add to it. The that, likely, by the way, is a good formulation. Yeah. It's going to be crazy either way. It depends, yeah. like, you know, which kind of crazy, you know? You have, it's going to be atom- crazy. Atomic bomb crazy or hydrogen bomb crazy. <laughs> and I hate to throw, like, an extra wrinkle into it, but the presidential campaign begins immediately. So you're going to have Democrats announcing candidacies, you know, front runners, less front runners, 50 to, all, I'm not going to say more than, 50, you know, yeah. there's going to be a lot of Democrats running for president. We might have a Republican primary challenge to President Trump too, from the Jeff Flake uh, kind of uh, a candidate. So you've got if the presidential, yeah, the presidential politics begin immediately if they haven't already. So that's one layer. And then you do have the, Rosenstein, if he does get fired or if he does quit too, which I think he, you know, he's probably seen and, and had quite a bit uh, uh, of. Uh, it's been tough for him. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on who takes over, and you know, I don't think that they can shut the Mueller probe down, especially if they're in the final stages. There's going to be whoever's in charge would get to decide on the on the release of the report, and they could mess with. Mueller's staffing levels and his budget. He has a budget. Um, his next budget, I believe, is due, um, at least publicly. I think we'll get the public read on it in December. So, you know, we can watch but, and but see what decisions, the decisions. You, know. you clarify this for me, because all decisions on bringing an indictment, expanding the investigation, or issuing the report, that all has to be approved by the Deputy Attorney General at, the, at this point. That is correct. correct. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and if the Deputy Attorney General says no, that actually does trigger um, an ability for Mueller on a major 
information or major decisions that does trigger uh, notification to Congress to the to the, I think it's the both D's and R's um, in Congress. So you know if major things are proposed and and again Rod Rosenstein has been I think very much willing to let Mr. Mueller do everything that he has wanted to do. If someone who replaced Rosenstein took the opposite course, I think we would start to hear those kinds of things on Capitol Hill. They would come out pretty darn quickly. Um, it's hard to know what more Mueller has to do. I mean, that's maybe the key here is, you know, mm-hmm. what else is there still for Mueller to be to be done? I mean, again, downloading information from Manafort, we just don't know where that's going to take us. There, There is this Roger Stone grand jury that has been meeting mm-hmm. and interviewing all of his associates, and we don't know, and Roger Stone's lawyers are very much in the dark about whether this is going to lead to an indictment on their client. Roger Stone is just out there like a, you know, a bullfighter waving that red flag and kind of urging Mueller to come after him. He was, I think, speaking publicly a week ago and down in South Florida and just you know, egging Mueller on, saying, bring it on. Um, so that will be very interesting if a Roger Stone indictment happens, which would just be... You know, think about the number of people who who are cooperating, who have been indicted around Donald Trump. You know, from Michael Cohen, which is not directly related to Mueller. Yeah, we, haven't, we haven't heard we haven't heard from Michael Cohen lately, have we? <laughs> There's you know only which so much weird. bandwidth to yeah. to take it all in. But yeah, Michael Cohen. Remember, he had a tweet about two weeks ago um, where he posted a tweet, and then Lanny Davis, his attorney, also posted a tweet, and I think one of them got deleted. But it basically said that Michael Cohen was cooperating with Mueller and had been seen at Mueller's um, offices, and I think had just been mm-hmm. downloading Mueller on, on everything he knows. So you've got uh, Cohen, you've got Manafort. I mean, if Roger Stone down the line was ultimately flipped and became a government witness, you know, there's really very few people in Donald Trump's orbit besides his children um, and I don't. I would say maybe Roger Stone, you know, knows more about Donald Trump from all the way back. Because I mean, if you look at Donald Trump's flirtations with presidential politics, you know, his New York businesses, his lobbying. I mean, Roger Stone has been there from the beginning of this. You know, absent, I would say, um, uh, forgive me, uh, our, our famous uh, uh, Watergate. Uh, um, I'm, I'm totally blanking on the name right now, but uh, Donald Trump's uh, famous. Uh, Early uh, 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 Roy Cohen, excuse me. Roy, Roy Cohen. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Anyway, between Roy Cohen and Donald and Roger Stone, there's very few um, people who have known Donald Trump and urged him on in the political world for, for as long as as Stone. So if if Manif- excuse me, if Mueller was able to pull Roger Stone into this orbit and get him cooperating, I mean, I just don't know where where that's that pretty is. close. They, yeah. So one 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 last question: Where are we at on? Um, an, an interview with the president, interview slash subpoena of the president. Yeah, that one's kind of moved, I think, to the back burner during the midterm uh, period here as we get up to the election. The latest I've heard from the, you know, the Giuliani uh, Secolo orbit is negotiations are continuing. There has been this talk that maybe the president would just answer written questions, which um I, I haven't heard that from the Mueller world. You just really hear that from the Trump world, which leads me to think that maybe we're not getting the entire story based on everything we have gotten yeah. previously from the Trump lawyers. Um, I think on a subpoena of the president, you know, that would be pretty explosive if it were to happen. It would drag things out. I mean, that's the one reason that I hear why that hasn't happened is that would take I would add an extra year to the clock for how long it would take to get that through the, the legal process. And does Mueller really need an interview with Donald Trump? to finish a report. Obviously, if you're going to charge somebody with obstruction of justice, you are supposed to get at their intent and ask them. But very rarely do targets themselves sit for interviews. So, 
you know, again, Mueller could probably do a lot of what he needs to do by talking to the other witnesses, um, looking at the president's tweets, looking at the president's public comments and interviews. And clearly, yes, he would like to ask the president the intent question. But um, is he ready? Does he need to let this lead to a six to nine to 12 month fight going to the Supreme Court? And I guess, you know, is he looking at what Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court and everything he has said about investigation? Because he has a very long track record of commenting not just because he was part of Ken Starr's investigation in Clinton, but everything that um, Ken, uh, Brett Kavanaugh has said about investigations of presidents where he has been very clear that he is not a fan of these kinds of investigations that he was once part of um, suggests that a court that was conservative and 5-4 might actually lean in on the side of uh, President Trump and you know maybe change some of the precedent that we have in some of these other very historic scandal-related cases, including the Nixon tapes, which was a 9-0 decision saying you have to that, turn those that would, over. That would, that would be pretty remarkable, wouldn't pretty it? Pretty remarkable overturning of precedent. And then there's the Clinton-Jones case where a president does have to sit for a civil deposition related to things previous to his time in office. This would be asking for a subpoena of a sitting president for criminal matters while in office, which is a question that hasn't ever gone to our nation's Supreme Court before. And speaking of the, the the Supreme Court, we are actually smarter at the end of this podcast than at the beginning of this podcast, which, again, we're, we're, we're pre-taping by a little bit. Um, Susan Collins saying that she will vote to advance the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the, uh, you know, she'll, she'll vote for cloture, um, which does not actually mean that she will vote to confirm him, but I think you can read the the, the tea leaves uh, there. Uh, D- Darren Samuelson, thank you so much for joining me, Darren Samuel. D- D- Darren's work can be found at uh, politico.com. Every Friday we do a cross-platform discussion like this between the Weekly Standard and Politico. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>